Hey, Al. Hey, Miles. What's up? I was just wondering, so you're from Scotland. Do you know anything about the Marvel UK heroes from the early 90s? Oh, yeah. They were a big thing when I was just starting to get into Marvel. So what's the deal with Motormouth? She showed up in a couple issues of Peter David's Hulk run, but other than that, she doesn't seem to have made much of an impression in Marvel in the U.S. Well, Motormouth was a teenage girl by the name of Harley Davis, who accidentally got mixed up in the plans of the evil Miss Tech Corporation when she stole some of their experimental dimension hopping equipment. Okay, okay. So I'm guessing they wanted that stuff back. They really did. So they sent Killpower, who was this massively powerful hitman with a mind of a child, to take her out. Uh, but wait a minute. Wasn't her book called Motormouth and Killpower? It was. Killpower quickly switched sides to side with Motormouth, and everything was going totally fine until she caught a stray ricochet from a bullet he'd fired. Luckily, he was able to save her. With some kind of battlefield medical training? Nah. Okay, maybe an advanced mistech healing doohickey. Not even. Well, how did he save her? By implanting bits of her sneakers in her throat. What?! I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for Jay Edden while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 398 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back from space! As <laughs> half of the X-Men, at this point in time, have been dealing with Operation Zero Tolerance for what feels like about 150 years. And the rest of them have been off gallivanting around doing Shi'ar things, as is the X-Men's occasional wont. Yes, indeed. See, the colorful space cops, the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, they were busy with their own miniseries, so they recruited the X-Men to protect the galactic empire of bird jerks that they normally protect from the evil phalanx. And that group that they took was Beast, Rogue, Gambit, Bishop... The seemingly de-aged and amnesiac version of Magneto, Joseph, and, of all people, Beast's ex-girlfriend, the intrepid and extremely human reporter Trish Tilby. Trish Tilby? Strange choice. She is a bit of a weird one. I always want to call her Tish Trilby, which is, I don't know why that is, but it's uh, maybe she's got a hat somewhere in her genetics. Uh, but she's kind of disappeared off the radar in recent years. Like, current continuity, I'd be very interested to see what she makes of Hank, given where he is now. No spoilers on that front for anyone who's not reading current X-Men comic. Oh, for real, yeah. So, along with bringing the X-Men into space, a bunch of drama was brought into space as well. Because, as you may recall, Rogue recently absorbed some vague and confusing memories from Gambit when they kissed when the world was apparently ending, right before the Age of Apocalypse. In terms of what those memories were, we don't know the full details yet, but they have something to do with Mr. Sinister and something to do with some events in which Gambit is ashamed of his role. And the X-Men eventually managed to defeat the Phalanx through a combination of punching and science. Again, the traditional X-Men way of solving things. And they earned themselves a trip back to Earth on the Empress's sister, Deathbird's spaceship. But just as they were about to head through the Stargate to the Milky Way, a giant spaceship smashed into them and everything exploded. Which brings us on to Uncanny X-Men number 347, Big Night, which was written by Scott Lobdell, breakdowns by Joe Majirara, finishes by Tim Townsend, Eric Cannon, Al Milgram, always a sign of a quality comic when there were three separate credited inkers. The colors are by Steve Butchelato and the letters by Comacraft. Let's start with the cover. So, you know, Gambit's being crushed under a giant monster hand as usual. But more importantly, there is this diagonally cut corner panel of Maggot saying, and don't forget about me, kitties. Uh, he was also on the cover of number 345, despite only appearing for one page. Like, Marvel is really trying to make fetch happen at this point. Maggot is... 
part of this kind of new generation of X-Men that they're bringing in, which also includes Marrow and Cecilia Reyes, but they're are hardly like the all new all different X-Men. Uh, Hasbro did actually just very recently bring out a Marvel Legends figure of Maggot, so it's possible that his long-awaited moment has finally come and he was just 20 years ahead of his time. He did recently have a genuinely pretty great X-Men Infinity Comic Unlimited, whatever it's called, story. So, you know, he's getting a bit more of a spotlight than he has in literal decades. I appreciate that. Well, we rejoin the X-Men in this issue. Uh, We pick up on Gambit's cliffhanger page from Uncanny X-Men 346, which didn't cover on the show at the time. But it basically is him on an alien planet being menaced by a horse guy. And it turns out we were wrong about two things in all the assumptions we had from that single page. Number one is that the planet he's on is actually Earth. The X-Men actually made it despite the Stargate having been so severely damaged by the giant mystery spaceship. This part's kind of weird. Like, the narration says that Gambit knows this, that he realizes he's home. But his and the X-Men's dialogue for most of this issue imply that they still think they were sent to an alien planet, as was the original implication. So, we'll see. But uh, yeah, spoilers, they are indeed on Earth. Albeit, not Earth as we know it. Kind of. Number two, the horse guy. No longer a horse guy. He's now a gigantic necklace cat frog lizard monster. I love the way the issue handles this. Yeah, basically, Gambit just says, oh, I didn't know that sticking my bow staff in your mouth would puff you up. He looked like a chameleon in the previous issues. He was a horse guy. He claims to be a Clyruvian here. Uh, Yeah, I don't really know what that is. I don't think there are any other Clyruvians, but he looks awesome. Like, he's just this big, bulbous, angry thing. (laughs) It feels very much like there was some kind of handbrake turn at some point between last issue and this issue at an editorial level and the dialogue had to be papered over (laughs) to kind of cover why he looks so different here to his very short appearance in issue 346 he's allergic to sticks who knew Mm -hmm. it's it's a clyruvian thing that happens to all of them you're a horse you get a stick shoved in your mouth and now you're a big frog lizard Indeed. Well, his name is Grovel, and he's a bounty hunter who's after Gambit. Grovel has these kind of jagged speech bubbles with this tan background and green words instead of italicized words. You can tell Comic Craft are enjoying playing with this. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, like, I always try to figure out when there are weird speech bubbles, what do they represent? What does this character sound like? Like, it's one thing in Sandman where you can get a real feel for it, but sometimes it seems kind of random in Marvel. Like, why does Ozymandias seem to talk with speech bubbles that are cuneiform, chiseled bits into stone? I don't know, he just does. What does that sound like? Hard to say. So for this guy, for Grovel, I was kind of thinking he sounds like Kermit the Frog crossed with cable so sort of a grovel the bounty hunter here (laughs) i think that is definitely i mean that's canon now like i i think that's going to be in the next official handbook entry that contains grovel and when grovel gets his solo mcu movie i mean they can just hire me to voice him yeah i think so and andy circus to do the mocap of course oh yeah yeah i mean Admittedly, Andy Serkis' silhouette and grovels aren't quite the same, but have we ever tried sticking a bow staff in Andy Serkis's mouth? Maybe he would puff up too. I think he would be just as unimpressed. <laughs> uh, Grovel's partner also shows up. Uh, this is Spat. She's a girl of maybe 12. Uh, she's wearing a fur cavewoman bikini and holding this giant spear, which is connected to her gauntlet with a big chain. She's basically Shanna the Wee Devil. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so now we've met Grovel and Spat, and I became a little obsessed with these characters because they're so just random. Like, why is there an alien and a cave girl after Gambit? Like, okay, the bounty hunters after Gambit, fine. That will feed into a story that we're leading up to, but these two? So I just want to quote the Marvel database here in terms of why Grovel and Spat are Grovel and Spat. Spat and Grovel were created in the late 90s, during a time Toy Biz's handling of the X-Men licensing included the creation of action figures for even new and fairly obscure characters. With this in mind, Spat and Grovel's creators, Scott Lobdell and Joe Matarera, designed them with the intent to make their appearance unsuitable to be adapted into action figures. 
In spite of that, Spat and Grovel were featured in Toy Biz's 1998 Marvel's Most Wanted Action Figures series. And I gotta say, we'll post this in the Visual Companion. I, I want those action figures, they look amazing! And if we're talking crappy action figures, like, these are head and shoulders above the Senator Kelly dissolving into slime X-Men movie action figure from only a couple years later. Yeah, well, here in the UK, we had uh, a Doctor Who uh, figure line, which contained a figure of destroyed Cassandra, which was literally just an empty rectangular frame of silver painted plastic. So I am willing to entertain almost any action figure at this point. Wait, Cassandra? Like, the moisturize me stretchy face lady? Yep. It was literally, like, it was an action figure of her, but without the stretchy face trampoline person. So it was it was an action figure of her, but without the her? Yeah. It was literally just a rectangle of silver plastic. That is a great way to save money. Well done, toy company, I guess. <laughs> so... Spat, the aforementioned cave girl, has a grudge against Gambit for something that happened in Madagascar in the past, and because of someone he later worked for. So she feels pretty great about capturing him, saying, There's a price on your head, Remy. A steep price. And I'm dying for you to give me any excuse at all to bring them just ahead. See, they used to be great friends until they found out about who his employer was. And Grovel says... Even though you was always a bum, any one of us would have laid down our hides for you. Cause then, you was at least a bum with honor. Yeah, well, that was just a rumor I started. We also find out that Spat took a blast meant for Gambit at some point, back when they were buds. That's why she's so young. She has been aging in reverse since then. Okay, if you're trying to assassinate or even punish someone, why would you make that gun? That is such a specific thing for a gun to do. I bet it comes from Forge's uh, arsenal of weapons that do ridiculous things that you would never expect them to make guns for. Maybe he misinterpreted Wham's young guns. Go for it as a motivational instruction. <laughs> Forge has always been a little out of touch, so, you know, his interpretation of various things, I'll buy that. But man, this sort of thing comes up so much. We meet a new character, they know Gambit from the old days, and they remember him as being the absolute worst and are skeptical that anybody could care about him or he could ever do anything decent these days. Very Han Solo and also a little bit Wolverine and or Cable. Like, this just seems to be a Marvel thing. When you want to make a character mysterious and interesting, just keep adding shit into their past until it is ridiculously overstuffed. Yeah, I think Wolverine has uh, what you call load-bearing uh, backstory at this point if you take Wolverine out of the Marvel Universe it, it's likely to collapse so you know structurally if you're going to be doing that then you probably want to prop it up with at least you know a, a, a Dakin uh, maybe an X-23 as well <laughs> you need somebody with adamantium claws and a healing factor in there <laughs> otherwise I mean otherwise you just reboot like the DC Universe you have no choice indeed nearby at this point Deathbird ship cockpit flies out of a Stargate window and crashes. And out come Beast and Trish Tilby, who are completely fine. Hank figures out that wherever they are, it's probably fine, as he puts it. Because of the random effects of the transgalactic physics of Stargate travel, the rest of our friends have been deposited nearby. Dude, you, you might as well just have suggested reversing the polarity of the neutron flow. That is some grade A nonsensical science bullshit. I approve. I love that stuff where it sounds like, oh yeah, that that is clearly well thought out by a character with a who is firmly versed in Jack Kirby style science. And then the second you think about it, you realize it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, whenever the beast goes out drinking, the people he hangs out with most are probably Michael and Denise Okuda of the Star Trek franchise, who just give him their latest brand new invented um, tech words so they can just drop them into conversations. <laughs> Meanwhile, Rogue and Joseph wake up. They've been sort of snuggling up to each other next to a brook. I think Joseph's um, fascination with Rogue seems to be translated across from the potential on-off relationship between Rogue and Magneto that gets teased back and forth for literally 20 years. And it's just another sign that really you can 
change the guy's haircut and you can change how much he needs any Botox work done, but you can't change the fact that he's into girls with stripes in their hair. Yup. And it just becomes clearer and clearer, especially as Joseph is wearing the Shi'ar spacesuit that he's been wearing. Like, he really was just designed to capitalize on the Age of Apocalypse version of Magneto, that inexplicably younger, long-haired, kind of pretty boy that was in a relationship with Rogue, similar to how Wildchild and Sabretooth are together in X-Factor because they were together in the Age of Apocalypse. And don't get me wrong, I love the Age of Apocalypse, but sometimes that direct translation, it just makes things feel a little more contrived. I don't know, what do you think about Joseph? What do you think about Joseph as a character? Because, I mean, I know you've just come onto the show as, as a co-host while Jay's gone, so we haven't really talked about him. Yeah, I, I don't mind Joseph as a conceit. The problem is that there was no plan behind him. And eventually it just became, uh, is, is he on Magneto? Is he a clone of Magneto? Can he be both? Uh, do we need to choose? Can we just make something up? And it, it became quite apparent that they were really just kind of making it up from a month-to-month basis. Like that bit in Wallace and Gromit where... Uh, Gromit is laying train track frantically in front of the, the speeding toy train as it goes hurtling through their living room. But I don't begrudge them putting Magneto into the team. Having a, a good aligned version of Magneto as part of the X-Men is is good for story fodder. It worked before it can work again. And certainly, rather than have him be, you're trying to make amends or in any way remorseful, having him be someone who just doesn't remember anything that he did when he was Magneto. It's actually an interesting approach to take to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like, I, I like Joseph as a character. I, I don't know that you could have gone on with that part of the gimmick forever. Like, eventually he's got to get his memories back. He kind of got some of them back through research in the Magneto miniseries recently. But yeah, we never really get to see where that's going to go. I mean, in this very story that we're covering, albeit not in one of the issues we're covering in this episode, like, all of that just gets kind of thrown out the window in a very confusing fashion. Yeah, I think all of that gets thrown out the window in a very confusing fashion is probably the summary for most issues around this point in time. <laughs> that is very, very true. Yeah. Yeah, that Wallace and Gromit image does seem to be kind of <laughs> Scott Lobdell's style of plotting a lot of the time. And don't get me wrong, like, Scott Lobdell's a very good writer, I love his character work, but his plots aren't always as well-conceived as they might have been. Yeah, it's like that line from The Office where he says, sometimes I just begin sentences and I don't know how they're going to end. That's effectively it, but with plot lines. I feel like podcasting often works that way. (laughs) At least when I podcast. (laughs) So Rogue, uh, after she wakes up from this awkward embrace, uh, decides to fly around and explore, and she just sort of bounces off the sky, which is a bit of a surprise. So Joseph, also awake now, casts a kind of magnetic detect magic to see what the hell's going on. And that dispels the illusion of this alien forest that's around them. It turns out they're in a cave, and she just bounced off the roof of the cave. And they're on Earth. Joseph recognizes the planet's electromagnetic field and makes the connection. And so at that point, the illusion disappears for everyone. Yeah, like all of the different characters who have been scattered all around, from Gambit and the Bounty Hunters to these two, to Beast and Trish... And it is actually Rogue and Joseph that find the cause of this illusion. Yeah, it's this guy called Landscape, who is this blue, bald man covered in spatters of random colors. He can create holographic environments, and he's another bounty hunter who's working with Spat and Grovel. It's the only time he actually appears, but he's colorful. His powers are amazing. Uh, Al Ewing, if you're listening to this, please have Landscape beautify Mars in 2023. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this guy, that's the thing, like, his powers are incredibly strong. Like, he's managed to project this coherent, all-encompassing illusion to everybody around him. Like, even masterminds probably couldn't have that much of a range. Uh, And yet he is so insignificant that this storyline forgets he exists between this this issue and the next. Yeah, Gambit, even when he remarks on the fact that this guy's here, Gambit seems to know who he is, and he's basically just like, oh, that guy. that guy (laughs) stupid blue guy that can like control people's perceptions for a seemingly unlimited radius whatever that guy (laughs) what a doofus so they bump into spat grovel and gambit who is currently tied up 
and as Gambit breaks free, they're met by a robotic nanny in a French maid outfit surrounded by cyborg animals. Of course. This is Magneto's nanny robot from the classic Uncanny number 112 and 113. That was the one when Magneto captured and restrained the X-Men and had this robot nanny feed them baby food because, like, he was still really mad about the time that he was de-aged to an infant by the mutant alpha synthetic mutate that he made, and then he was raised as a baby by Moira McTaggart. I love the Bronze Age. I just miss how bonkers things were in the Bronze Age. Absolutely. Although, obviously, now it's a, a long and storied tradition having uh, villains force-feed the X-Men baby food because we know Strife likes doing it as well. I wonder if Strife and Nanny could just team up and, like, create a line of baby food. Like, in the Marvel Universe, it's not Gerber. It's Nanny Strife. I mean, Nanny Strife has kind of got a nice ring to it. Uh, to be fair, the little jars of baby food, you really shouldn't let babies handle them because they're just covered in spikes and blades. Oh, absolutely. And they, you can't really get them through the, the checkouts because they just keep catching on things. It's not very practical, but the baby food's really nutritious and actually tastes kind of good. Like, some adults even eat it sometimes, even when they're not force-fed by a robot and or strife. <laughs> that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 348, Because I Said So. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, John Holdridge, and Al Vey, colored by Digital Chameleon, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Colia Fuchs. And this opens with a glorious two-page spread of kind of like a three-quarters view of the X-Men and the Bounty Hunters, not landscape, because nobody cares about landscape, uh, facing off against all these different cyborg animals, including a cyborg dragon, who I was very disappointed doesn't actually have any role in even the fight scenes. It's just there and looks awesome and then is gone. It does feel like Joe Mad was saying, I'm only on this for one issue, and I'm just going to have fun. Very much so, yeah. And I kind of got to wonder, like, these cyborg animals, was that just Joe Matarera having fun? Because I was thinking back to a scene that didn't make any sense back in Uncanny 345, Maggot's very first appearance, when he saves that nun that's friends with Joseph from a cyborg gorilla. Like, I guess it would make sense. We know Maggot was tracking Joseph. We know that Nanny apparently is tracking Joseph and controls cyborg animals for some reason, so... I don't know if that was intentional or if that was just the Wallace and Gromit train track thing actually working out. But regardless, there are cyborg animals being led by a robot in a French-maid outfit, and I am very pleased about this entire scenario. Yeah, I mean, people talk about comics that are, like, good for you to read, but uh, honestly, any comic that's won a Pulitzer or anything like that, they, they just don't have this kind of stuff in them, and I think they're the poorer for it. I, I agree, I agree. I mean, there is the old uh, phrase, I don't remember the exact phrase, but that it was always better to have a monkey in a comic than to not have a monkey in a comic. And if you can make that monkey a robot monkey, then that's even truer. Also, if you can be back in Magneto's old volcano base in Antarctica, that is a plus as well, and that is where they are. And this makes sense, because in that story, in the original story, where the X-Men were force-fed baby food by a robot nanny in a French maid outfit— they were in Magneto's old base inside a volcano. This place was significant. This was where, when it was destroyed at the end of that story, the X-Men were separated. Phoenix and Beast thought the other X-Men were dead. They thought Phoenix and Beast were dead. They were separated for ages. Uh, what's weird, though, is that Nanny was destroyed at the end of that story. And she was destroyed even more when the X-Men went back to the remains of this base in Uncanny number 149. And here, she's fine. Yeah, we never really find out what happened there, or indeed why the Stargate took the X-Men so close to Magneto's base in the first place. Yeah, I mean, we do know that Spat and Gravel are looking for Gambit, and the boss that they're working for is indeed around here. So, like, it makes sense for the story, but I don't know how you can make that work. Like, the X-Men are heading back to Earth at the end of their Shi'ar space story. A random giant spaceship that I don't think is ever explained shows up, blows up the Stargate, and they crash land— exactly right here like that is i say this as somebody who reads superhero comics but that kind of seems like too many coincidences you know yeah i think that that big ship was the the uss plot contrivance <laughs> pretty much yeah uh and you know to the comics credit beast does kind of put a lampshade on this whole thing as he says even if magneto was behind this it defies logic to think that he could have drawn our ship to this exact spot but that is just the way the story is going to go, and there is a lot of fun stuff. And really, 
one of those fun things is Nanny. I love Nanny as a character. I love that Magneto, this like ultra serious villain with this incredibly traumatic past, not only built a robot to infantilize the X-Men, but specifically put it in a French maid outfit and gave it this super creepy sing-song voice. Like, all of Nanny's speech bubbles in this story have little musical notes uh, around around them. It gives the impression of this kind of chilling sing-song voice, like the turrets in the, the video game Portal, the little laser turrets that say things like, are you still there? Very much so, yeah. And that's the thing, it's really creepy. Like, the fact is, Nanny is very powerful herself. She has this uh, field around her that depowers mutants. Like, they just can't access their powers when they're near her. In the previous story, they had to be in their weird baby chairs for that to be the case. But I guess this new version of Nanny just has that as a, a more a more general power around her. And she's just so confident in her sort of parenting of all of these characters who have already been through a great deal. She calls Joseph her proud little boy. Like... I don't know. I I find her kind of an effective villain. I, not a villain you would want to have be part of a larger story, but just to show up here out of nowhere when the X-Men are suddenly in a volcano, I dig that. It helps keep the X-Men disoriented, I think. They're, they're somewhere they don't expect to be. They suddenly recognize the place and go, why on earth are we here? Where did you come from? Why is there a cyborg gorilla? Who is the large cat person who sounds like a gro- gravelly muppet? And why have we got no powers? Like, it's every single thing that happens to them is designed to pull another rug out from under their feet. And so that just means it's much easier for Nanny to get the better of them. So time to lock up some X-Men, I guess. The locks that she uses this time around are, uh, are a bit better than the ones that she was using before. Uh, she's resurrected herself, she's upgraded her powers, and thanks to Storm, she's also made pick-proof locks. Yeah, I enjoy that. I enjoy that she actually did learn from what went wrong the last time around. So most of the X-Men, you know, they lose their powers. It's unfortunate, but Rogue is really not doing so hot. Because remember, she doesn't just absorb the powers of the people that she touches. She also absorbs their psyches, their minds, their memories a little bit, especially with prolonged contact. And it looks like with her powers turned off, she can't really control that. And the different personae keep manifesting unexpectedly within her, taking her over. Yeah, so as she says, she spins around at one point and turns to Gambit and says, I said take your filthy hands off me, punk! Essex paid you big time to do your job, and you did it! Now back off, or so help me, your guts are going to be hanging all over these tunnel walls! It's so well executed by Joe Mad. The way that he draws her all fangly and animalistic is superb because it really gets across who exactly it is. And later on, she then also channels Gambit himself, saying, Shh, Petite, shh. Everything's going to be okay now. No one's going to hurt you now, Sarah. It's over. I know this don't mean nothing to you now, girl, but someday I want you to understand. I'm sorry. And then Gambit himself echoes the, I'm sorry. And this is a great way to tease out the nature of Gambit's mysterious crime. It lets us understand how bad it was and its basic nature, but it also makes it clear just how remorseful Gambit is. And some of the specifics here are also pretty clever. Yeah, it links Gambit to Sinister, links him to Sabretooth, links him to Sarah, who is presumably Maru. And it's quite elegant on Lobdell's part. For people who are continuity-minded, it pretty much narrows it down to one particular event, but Lobdell's careful not to totally spill the beans at this stage because he knows the trial issue is just around the corner. Yeah, yeah, this works. I mean, we, we were just talking about how Lobdell tends not to plan ahead as much as some other writers, but he is a master of the retcon. He is a master of working in little bits of continuity once he decides what he is doing to make it seem like that was the plan all along, at least to an extent, at least for the big stuff like this. Yeah. And Gambit still at this stage isn't able to open up to Rogue. He just has to ask her to trust him and not make him talk about it. And they realize that with their powers negated, this might be their only night together. And they hold each other and the comic fades to black, effectively. Yeah, I mean, we had that butte for Cyclops and Phoenix back in the Phoenix Saga near Warren's penthouse. And here we have Antarctica for Gambit and Rogue. 
And I was reading about this scene, and apparently there's some debate as to whether Gambit and Rogue actually have sex, or if they just hold each other all night. I don't know. This this doesn't seem very ambiguous to me. No, I don't think so. I think it's it's pretty much the... If there's any ambiguity, it's only because they went to the Comics Code Authority and told them, oh, no, it's ambiguous. It, it, yeah. it, it's not explicit in here. Yep. Well, while that's going on, elsewhere, Joseph has been put in his own cell. Because remember, Joseph is kind of, sort of, Magneto. Nanny recognizes that. And Joseph tries to use that. He tries to do his uh, usual, I am the Messiah thing that he did back in the Magneto miniseries with the Acolytes. But Nanny doesn't want to uh, listen to him. She doesn't want to let him out of his restraints. No, and what he notices is that there's a news report on about legacy virus. And that features Moira McTaggart, and that sets off his rage. Because, as we mentioned before, it was Moira McTaggart who, when Magneto was de-aged to a baby, raised him and tried to raise him as someone who wouldn't grow up to be so evil. So it's just another example of Joseph having some level of Magneto's memories and still having some of Magneto's dark impulses. But it's interesting to me here that Nanny, as far as we can tell, as far as she can tell, finds a new version of Magneto— and considers it her responsibility to make sure he's prepared before letting him back out into the world. Like, even though he was her creator, she still has that kind of maternal instinct, that maternal, scary, force-feed-you-baby-food, French-made-outfit instinct. Yeah, it does seem like he, Magneto created her to be a nanny, to, to look after him, which, I mean, there's there's all sorts of unexplored psychological stuff going on there, Magneto. I, I really think you should probably book some sessions with somebody and, and, and chat this through because it, it's it's worth taking the time to really examine this i mean doc samson you know he's around he may be sasquatch right now but he's still a licensed therapist <laughs> and that takes us on to uncanny x-men issue 349 the crawl which is written by scott lobdell it's penciled by chris Pachalo. Inks are by Dan Brown, colours by Digital Chameleon, and letters by Rich Starkings and Commoncraft. Chris Pichalo! Yes, I always love seeing him. And I'm really excited because he's actually going to be technically the regular artist for Uncanny for a little while. I mean, it's Chris Pichalo, so he'll still have a bunch of issues that he misses. But still, that's so much more Chris Pichalo than we were getting. Yeah, I think this is about the last period in time where... His work is still completely, I don't want to say coherent, but certainly comprehensible on a first reading. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that was something I noticed most of all with the sort of Return to the Age of Apocalypse miniseries that he did somewhere around 2000, give or take a decade. Uh, you sometimes couldn't tell what was going on. This also doesn't feature the sort of new Chris Pacello art style that we saw in his last arc of Generation X, where everybody looked much, much younger. This is more of the traditional 90s Pacello style that we saw throughout the previous run of Generation X, which is to say, it is great. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm really glad to have him on board, partly for this issue and partly for the issues to come. Um, he, he'll pick up properly as the regular artist on, I think it's 353. Um, but the, the longer they can give him around, the better for any run uh, on any book. And any issue that they get with him at this stage in his career, I think, is a real bonus. So at the time this is all going on with Joseph in a cave and, and all that kind of thing, Trish Tilby is still kicking around. She's still wearing her race car driver midriff bearing space outfit. And she's looking for the X-Men. And she is found by a hairy, muscular man in tattered shorts. It's George of the Jungle. As played by beloved actor Brendan Fraser. Oh, actually, it's Hank McCoy, who is uh, less beloved, especially these days. But there is kind of a strong resemblance, complete with that floppy hair. That's very 90s Brendan Fraser that Beast has right now. He really is. He just felt like... Uh, feeling a little special today. Mm -hmm. So Nanny's mutant depowering field apparently is pretty large. It extends over this entire area, just like landscapes, uh, perception-altering powers extended. But this is interesting, because at this point in continuity, Beast's blue fur isn't exactly part of his mutation. That was gained from that science potion that he drank way back in the day after the Silver Age of X-Men, right? Yeah, and it's something that... When we've seen him previously have his powers revert, he he tends to lose the the blue fuzziness before he loses the uh, big hands, big feet physique kind of structure that he has. 
And that makes more sense in context when you get on to just a couple of years from now and Grant Morrison comes on, where they explain at that point that the fur and the changing of the shape is actually the manifestation of a secondary mutation. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, you mentioning that we are just a couple of years out from Morrison, that is so surreal to me because for me, like, I didn't read X-Men for a long time. I didn't read X-Men uh, the first time around between the end of Age of Apocalypse and the beginning of Morrison's run. And so for me, there is just this gulf of immense time between those runs, but it actually wasn't that long. Like, it was, what, maybe five or six years at most between that. Like, we are so much farther at this point in the present day from Morrison's run than Morrison's run was from so much of what we've covered on this podcast. Time is very strange. Yeah, I feel very old just thinking about that. <laughs> but meanwhile, back at the volcano-based prison, Gambit and Rogue have uh, just, as they say here, fully expressed their love. I don't think there's much ambiguity there. But apparently they've done it within chained-up distance of Spat and Grovel, which seems just deeply unromantic, really. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's a good point. Like, they are on chains. They are on these tethers. They can't get very far. Like... I don't know, did they just put up a privacy partition or something? Or I guess Grovel himself is very large. Like, at this point, they're each sitting on opposite sides of Grovel. Is Grovel a privacy partition? <laughs> he is. He's just a changing screen that you can wander behind. You don't even need to worry about him being able to see you because it looks like his neck isn't particularly movable. Although, you never know, I'd probably have to have the action figure in hand to see exactly how articulated he is. Gambit's chest hair I would like to draw attention to at this moment in time because it is disconcertingly concentric circles that are structured around his, his chest bone here and he, he looks like a sort of hairy version of the classic Havoc costume. You know I hadn't thought about that but yeah it's like that uh, amazing Neil Adams cover of Havoc except chest hair instead of plasma blasts. I wonder if the living monolith would have been as interested in chest hair based powers if they would have empowered him as well as Havoc's uh, plasma did. Yeah, living mullet perhaps. <laughs> yup. And Gambit is brooding to himself some to grovel some about how he knows that as great as this has been, as amazing as it's been to connect with Rogue in this fashion, they can't be happy. Rogue can't be happy until he comes clean. But Rogue, maybe it's the afterglow, maybe she's just really come to terms with it. She's not as worried. Yeah, she says herself. Almost from the first time we headed into town on your bike, I could feel it. For the first time in my life, I felt hope. I knew that underneath all that hair, all that attitude, there was a person who cared about me, a person who loved me, a person I could love. And I do, Remy. I love you. At which point he just walks away and is all mopey and sad about how she wouldn't love him if she really knew him. Get over yourself, Remy, really seriously. There is some well-done character work here, though. Like, as much as I think... Remy and his secret and his brooding has been dragged on longer than it needs to be. Something about this sincerity coming from Rogue, coming from this person with a, an incredibly traumatic past, having just been able to experience something that she's never been able to experience and has wanted to for a long time, especially with Remy. Like, it's sad and it's frustrating. It's frustrating that Remy isn't able to just say, look, here's what's going on. Do what you need to. But I think that's part of the point. I think Gambit's bad judgment being the main obstacle to his and Rogue's relationship, it works. I mean, X-Men is and has always been a soap opera, and if it was too easy for them, I don't think it would be as effective. I don't think we would be as invested in their relationship. Like, they have to go through hell to get to the happiness that they eventually get to in current continuity. Yeah, absolutely. And Gambit's propensity to make the wrong decision at any given time it manifests partly in what he did with sinister which we'll come on to when we reach issue 350 but it also manifests in his personal life as well he, he's somebody who gets in his own way i do love though that he and rogue kind of do get a happy ending i mean okay technically right now she's a brood queen for a storyline whatever but you know resurrection it's fine like I love that eventually they do get married. They get to co-star in their own, sadly short, ongoing series for a while. I think we're going to get another miniseries about them coming out soon. Like, 
they're kind of one of the healthiest couples in the Marvel Universe at this point. And part of why that pleases me so much is because they've been through so much shit to get there. It's like, you guys have really earned this. You guys have really put in the work and the drama. Yeah, they've been stress tested. And having been put through so much fire, they've come out stronger on the other side. It's like a, a sword being forged, effectively. At the same time as this is all happening, you've got Grovel trying to convince Gambit to either tell Rogue about his past or not do it or, and stop worrying about it. And then the other side of Grovel, uh, you've got Spat trying to help Rogue work through these vague memories of Gambit's that are still in her head, which are, for reasons that we'll come to, they're a little weird because Spat suggests there should be eight people there in the memory plus Gambit, when actuality, if you go back to the specific issue that he's remembering, there should be nine. But we will come to that. Very much so. Uh, at this point, Joseph shows up looking very Age of Apocalypse Magneto. He has apparently smashed a whole bunch of the robots, or possibly the cyborg animals, in which case that is sad, because I like those cyborg animals. And he's broken free. And we also find that Gambit had picked the locks after all and just hadn't mentioned it to anybody because they had no plan, they had no way out, so he didn't see a point in doing so. Once again, not having perhaps the best judgment. I guess it just got a lot easier to escape this place between last issue and this one. Yeah, I think maybe they've just switched difficulty to casual because they're they're fed up of this level and they just want to move the plot on. Let's get to the next cutscene. <laughs> yep. So their escape is blocked by Nanny course who firstly no longer has musical notes around her speech bubbles and that's how you can tell she means business and secondly has gone into full-on mad max mode she's got massive spiked fists and studded shoulder armor and glowing eyes and sharp teeth and spike wrecking balls instead of feet and even her hair looks sharp it's pretty awesome. This actually reminds me a lot of the version of Nanny in Age of Apocalypse that was taking care of Magneto and Rogue's son, Charles. Because as I recall, when the bad guys came after Charles, she went into a similarly like weapon-covered French-made mode there. That is the kind of Age of Apocalypse reference I really enjoy. Like, not so much the, let's just replicate something that happened in Age of Apocalypse because people liked it, but more like, let's reference this minor little thing. Let's let's remind people of just how similar those realities were. Also, it's just fun to see a robot French maid covered in guns and spikes. I just inherently enjoy that. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly when she's developed the kind of murderous attitude that she has here, as she says to them, I've tried to be nice and kind and patient but you wanted to play as of this moment playtime is over i can almost hear like the, the tense music start playing and it's time for the end of level buddy but the mutants have got no powers but it doesn't matter because trisha tilby is there she's got a massive length of crowbar and smashes nanny over the head with it uh, crowbars, of course, are the natural weakness of robotic au pairs. Oh yeah, it's like uh, it's like the type relationships in in Pokemon. You know, robot French made type is weak against steel type, I suppose. Uh, I guess this makes sense though, because Nanny is so geared toward mutants, toward detecting mutants, toward detaining mutants, toward depowering mutants. That was kind of Magneto's thing in creating her when he did. That said, the mutants are all depowered at this point. Would she still be able to detect them and track them? Is it just like an X-gene kind of thing? or Possibly. I mean, I suspect Magneto probably didn't expect humans to be able to even get into his base, let alone there, there to be any needs for him to be able to detect them once they got there. But Trish is not up for being a long-term hero. She's She's quite clear on what her role is. As she says... But don't get used to this, gang. As superheroines du jour go, I think I make a really good news anchor. So we're still left with the question of who rebuilt Nanny, and we will get to that. But for now, we're in the issue out with Rogue directly confronting Gambit. She wants to know what his secret is. It's gone on long enough. And he won't say, but he will turn himself into the Bounty Hunters... And off they go to issue 350, The Trial of Gambit. And we will get to that uh, very soon indeed. 
We thought about covering that issue in this episode, but so much happens then, and we figured probably better to just uh, give it the focus it deserves, both in terms of plot and in terms of the writer turnover we're going to see, because this is Scott Lobdell's last issue of Uncanny X-Men. We already covered his last issue of Adjectiveless X-Men, but one of the most significant X-Men writers in the history of the line, certainly the most significant X-Men writer of the 90s, is now officially off the book. Yeah, I mean, he'll he'll come back from time to time to do bits and pieces, but yeah, this is the, the end point of his long run. I mean, it's something like... Oh, hundred odd issues that he was the writer for certainly a long time and he got a reputation whether justified or not as being somebody who didn't plot ahead but did pretend that he was plotting ahead so he would lay out things that were clearly mysteries to be solved and it was as if he just stick a little post-it note on them and said something like work this out later nb revise in that regard he actually was not that different from claremont i mean don't get me wrong claremont had mysteries upon mysteries upon plot points upon plot points but he's also been very public in discussing how louise simonson at the time louise jones was the one who would come up with a lot of the plot points by saying, Chris, you remember that little bit that you brought up and then never explained in issue number XYZ six years ago? So I don't know. I mean, there's a lot to be said for having the grand plan figured out before you even start writing issue number one. But the ability to effectively retcon, I don't want to uh, undersell how important that can be. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Claremont and Simonson did it probably a lot better than Lobdell and his editors did. But still, it's an X-Men tradition. Yeah, and the other great thing that Lobdell has to his credit is that he was always terrific at doing the immediately post-crossover quiet issue of character discussions, which were always, in one way or another, vaguely heartbreaking. And if he had had an entire series just doing that, then uh, I think he might be more fondly remembered i mean part of the reason why he's not as fondly remembered as as he could be is that he left the book at a time when the plotting was essentially just messy because of editorial um confusion and chaos very much and we'll see a lot more of that in the era that we're coming into because Nistieza left a while ago, Lobdell then took over both X-Men books, now Lobdell's gone, so we're going to see Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly do the two X-Men books for a little while. Both excellent writers, like Steve Siegel especially is, is a beloved comic book writer for me, he's, he's done some of my favorite stuff. But uh, there was just so much editorial interference at this point that their runs are astonishingly messy. They don't really go anywhere. A lot of the ideas that are brought up never are expanded on in the ways that they need to be. So, Al, I know you have like a different set of knowledge of uh, Marvel history than I do. What do you know about the editorial interference that was going on in this era? As I understand it, Jill Kelly and Steve Siegel came onto the books as writers but effectively just as executors for what Bob Harris wanted done with the books. Bob Harris was essentially writing the titles at this point, and it was just down to Kelly and Siegel to pretty much just put down what he wanted to see on the page. And as a result, it's not an incredibly satisfying um, environment for a writer to work in and Joe Kelly and, and Steve Siegel, Kelly in particular have, have both been public in interviews since then about how it was just a, a creatively very difficult period for them and that that's one of the reasons why they didn't last very long on the books it, it just was no fun to do these stories at all which is a damn shame but the goal of this podcast is and has always been to explain all of the X-Men, at least, you know, the team books and the major stuff. So, uh, yeah, we'll be covering that soon. I'm excited to uh, to get wrist deep in this messy, messy X era. But 
as much as we have finished talking about the big plot in Lobdell's last issues, we haven't talked about the B plots because there are a few little bits of plot that are scattered between all of the X-Men having returned from space, giant Kermit the Frog cable guy bits. So let's check in with Marrow and Callisto. The last time we saw them was in the last issue of this book when... Marrow and Callisto showed up to meet up with Spider-Man, and Callisto was injured protecting Senator Kelly from Prime Sentinels. Their appearances here for both of them is pretty notable. Marrow is working hard and not particularly successfully to keep more bones from popping out of her. She looks way more monstrous than the last issue. And that's great. There is an explanation for it. It's not just this kind of random sexification. And one of the great things about Marrow as a character has always been that she's physically unnerving. These bones that jut out at all angles makes her this memorable visual, and she's not just another swimsuit special candidate. In a few years' time, when Alan Davis is returned to the books, rolls around, she'll be given this makeover that has her looking much more traditionally pretty, and she loses a big chunk of charm in the process. But appearance-wise, we also really have to check out Callisto's look. Now, we know that she was severely injured. We know that she took an energy blast to the torso. So I guess it makes sense that she's, while she's being treated for her injury, she's not wearing a shirt. But why does she have a pile of autumn leaves covering her breasts? How, how, how does that help? I believe it's the Victoria's Secret Fall Collection. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's got something to do with how Polaris and Mystique had their breasts carefully bandaged and very sexily bandaged in, in our last episode. I, the 90s are a confusing time, okay? <laughs> They're recuperating directly under the furniture to which Callisto actually nailed Angel by his wings when she kidnapped him way back when in Uncanny 169-170. And Marrow is remembering the time that she was just Sarah. She was the spiky little girl and she saw the most beautiful man she'd ever seen just nailed to some furniture. And it's actually really clever to remind everyone that Mara's name is Sarah because then in the scene where we already covered where Rogue channels Gambit and mentions Sarah, we get an extra little bit of clue to Gambit's dark past. I like that. Callisto's begging Marrow to find and help the X-Men so that she can actually fix things. As she says to Callisto, I am going. Things are bad, and I will do whatever I can to make things better. And? And I will try not to kill anyone, unless I have to. And then off she goes to meet up with Iceman in the Operation Zero Tolerance arc that's already been covered on the show. Now, of course, of all the X-Men who crash-landed on Earth, we missed one of them. We missed Bishop, so... What's Bishop been up to since Deathbird ship blew up? Well, turns out that Deathbird has actually rescued Bishop. She teleported the two of them away before the Stargate blew up, and they're on this asteroid outpost where Deathbird's telling him that all the X-Men are dead, and he's here to have his injuries from trying to save them treated. Yeah, she is completely lying to him right now. Uh, she just basically wants Bishop for herself. We've seen the sparks. We've seen the chemistry between the two of them. Uh, on the podcast, we've certainly commented on how much we enjoy that. And this will be the status quo for Deathbird and Bishop for a while. They're going to be in space together being sexy badasses, basically. Yeah, it seems that the Shiar medicine is pretty intense. Uh, there's all sorts of pipes that are just coming down from the ceiling and burrowing into Bishop's flesh to rebuild his bones. I mean, I guess he is no stranger to that. I do remember that very visceral panel of Uncanny way back when, when he got impaled on a rusty pipe and then just pulled himself free of it and walked away. So, ain't no thing. <laughs> That's why he's such a badass. Deathbird and Bishop, they're, I mean, they're a really odd couple, but they both seem to be pretty into their kind of interstellar, hyper-flirty, metal kink escapades. So, I mean, more power to them, really. I would never yuck their space yum. Indeed. And the last people that we have to catch up with is uh, Maggot. And as we know, we've to not forget about him. He did tell us, he did warn us in advance, don't forget about me, kids. 
Maggot has followed Joseph's trail to Pine Bluffs, which is the town that Rogue was living in in X-Men Unlimited after she left the X-Men, before her landlord turned her in to Humanity's Last Stand and she fought them off with Joseph. Uh, We covered that story in episode number 348, if you want to go back and check it out. At that point, uh, it's confronted by anti-mutant jerks in a truck that has the license plate Big Mother. But this is where we get a closer look at what Maggot's powers are. Because he has two robotic-looking giant black armored maggots, or slugs as they're often called, that each have three red eyes and these vents with energy escaping. Uh, Yeah, those two things come out and uh, eat the Big Mother truck. They are no longer Big Mother truckers. These slugs are Eenie and Meenie, and they're going to be portrayed as much less mechanical-looking later. This is a slightly different look than we'll see, but this is Maggot's power. His digestive system is these two slug maggots that burrow out of him, eat things, and burrow back in, which I love. It is such a bizarre, gross mutant power. It really is. I mean, it's disgusting, but it's brilliant. It's so good that he gets introduced at roughly the same time as Marrow does as well, because it really shows that thing that, that Morrison, in fact, showed later on, where you're not every single mutant is going to be some statuesque dude with a eye blast. It's going to be weird people. It's going to be guys with three eyes and two noses and things like that. At the same time as this is happening... Archangel and Psylocke are flying back from the Crimson Dawn miniseries back to their loft, and Betsy is missing her eye tattoo, which is a shame because that was about the only decent thing that actually came out of the Crimson Dawn miniseries. And they don't waste too much time in trying to figure out what's going on, where the X-Men are, what trouble there is out there in the world. And so they head in the direction of the World Trade Center, because that's where Maggot is now. He's ended up in New York City following Joseph's trail, and he specifically followed that trail to the building where Joseph and Rogue shared that moment when Joseph summons the giant robot donut that he built to temporarily turn off her powers. This is interesting because Maggot mentions that he's able to sort of read the history of this place. In fact, we see a lot of little scenes of just random people that were atop the World Trade Center at various points, all drawn in Bicello's charming, charming style. He also draws uh, a gorilla as one of them. I I think King Kong got lost from the Empire State Building, hard to say. (laughs) But this is weird because psychometry is not really one of Maggot's powers, typically. I don't think we see him use that kind of location-slash-object-reading thing again. Like, we've seen that in X-Men. Longshot can do that. But this seems to be sort of a one-time ability for Maggot. Yeah, I mean, he also says that Eni and Meenie can track Magneto, and they don't appear to be able to do that with anyone else ever in future. So, so again, I think it's fair to say that Lobdell is taking Maggot a little bit one day at a time here. And when Joe Kelly came on to the books, he said later that there was almost nothing worked out in detail about the character. So it was really up to the people who came onto the books to make some kind of sense of it. And one of the things that got lost along the way was this tracking ability of the slugs or the maggots indeed. And also one of the things that was lost is the reason Psylocke tracks down and sucker kicks maggot because she senses this great darkness within him. And I don't think we ever find out what that great darkness is. Uh, I guess you could say it could be related to the fact that Maggot slugs, Enie and Meenie, look a little bit like the Rutai, who are a demon race that the X-Men will, will encounter in a little bit. I don't think that's ever really been confirmed, though. So once again, this is just a plot point that is being dropped as the writer transitions to another writer. That said, Chris Bacciolo does draw this fight scene, and therefore it is awesome. We get to see Maggot's kind of combat form. Uh, normally, he's the slim, brown-skinned dude with a little lock of hair, kind of like Strong Guy has. But when he powers up, when Eni and Meenie sort of power him up, he's this enormous, muscular blue guy, and he looks amazing. He really does. It's a super cool bit of visual work here. Um, Bacalo does, for my money, the best version of Maggot. I just absolutely love to see it. Psylocke has got her tattoo back in this issue, which is great. It's a step up for her. She presumably forgot that she needed it and so has drawn it back on with, I don't know, lipstick or something like that um but she says that not only does she sense a great darkness in maggot but that maggot's name is suspicious and like well i mean come on at least his name's a word 
like it's kind of rich for someone called Psylocke to be dunking on somebody's name. Come on, lady. There is that. I don't know. Maybe she's mad that it's spelled wrong. Like, I still don't know why it's M-A-G-G-O-T-T. And it's consistently that. Like, that's not a typo. That is just how his name is spelled. I couldn't say why. Maybe it's like a Richter Richter kind of thing where we're not meant to understand. Yeah, entirely possible. Archangel follows the sound of the screams to find her and he comes upon the fight. The fight, which is, by this point, just rubble a go-go, shredded clothing, Eni and Meanie going absolutely ham on everything in sight. Psylocke's focused totality of her telepathic power uh, zaps her because telepathy doesn't work right on Maggot because his consciousness is shared out between him, Eni, and Meanie. And Meanie, it looks like he's about to eat Psylocke, but Warren thankfully shows up just in time to save Betsy from being gobbled up. And so that's where we will leave off. Gambit has just turned himself into bounty hunters and is being taken to their mysterious employer who... I suspect we uh, listeners may have an idea of who that employer is. And Psylocke and Archangel have just met up with Maggot, who himself is looking for Joseph. So everything is coming together just in time for a new writer and a double-sized issue coming right up. I suspect everyone has questions. And here are a couple of them. Chairface Chippendale asks on Tumblr, Comparing your coverage of past eras of X-Books with more current offerings has, for me, brought out the contrast between the denser, narration, and dialogue-heavy comics of yesteryear and the decompressed comics prevalent today. Do either of you have a preference between the two styles, or is it more a matter of execution? I think at the point that we're currently covering, we're still very much in the shadow of Claremont's approach to scripting. So you get these lengthy speeches that are juxtaposed with these extensive purple prose narrative captions. So it's not going to be for a couple more years until we get into the, the Gemis era where things are going to become much more decompressed. It is going to become a trend. It was something that Gemis really pushed for um, because he wanted trade paperbacks to be effectively the unit of delivery for comics but even at that point, because the writers who were working on the X-Books were people like Grant Morrison, Peter Milligan, Joe Casey, and people like that, the X-Books largely escaped the worst of it. It manifested, I would say, worst in books like Daniel Way's Venom, for example, which is this extended riff on The Thing, uh, as in the John Carpenter movie, rather than the Orange Rocky dude. And little to nothing happens for 20 pages at a time. And then there's a cliffhanger. But I think that with any comics writing technique, it's not so much about the model you're using. It's more about the execution. So, I mean, a comic can be pretty dialogue light and it can still pack in a ton of incident. And on the other side of things, you can have a comic where, you know, it's drowning in text and there's almost nothing actually happening issue to issue, naming no particular Avengers runs. But if you look at the, for example, the new issue, but if you look at, for example, enough said issue of New X-Men, there's almost no dialogue or narration in that, but it's so tightly structured and a ton happens. And it's really, for me, it's really about whether the approach is done well rather than whether it's stylistically dialogue heavy or narration heavy or whether it's much more sparse. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, you mentioned the enough said issue of New X-Men. I love that one. It's it's a classic. I'm also thinking of the first issue of a couple of Black Widow runs ago. I don't remember the writer, but it was uh, drawn by Chris Samney. And that first issue has little to no dialogue. It's just basically one action scene. And yet it took me probably even longer to read than a normal amount of dialogue in a comic, just because the art was so dense and there was so much detail and it was just so compelling and thrilling. So I don't know. I mean, for X-Men... I really love the Claremont style of just saying a ton. It is fun, but at the same time, if the pacing is not done well, then you just sort of glaze over. So yeah, I just like it when writers play to their strengths, when artists play to their strengths, and more importantly, when the dynamic between a writer and an artist uh, plays to its strength. So uh, yeah, once again, the answer to one of our listener questions is, well, it depends. <laughs> Separately, Samantha was emailed to ask, I've just started reading Uncanny Avengers. In issue one, Captain America says to Havoc, you're a government man, degree in geophysics, a student of Xavier's with clean history. When did Alex complete his degree? Was it off panel between the events of his life, including but not exclusively Mutant X, Starjammers and X-Factor investigations? 
I've been working my way through all X-Men comics with my Marvel Unlimited subscription from the era you started covering the comics up until the events of Phoenix 5. I have no recollection of him completing it. I feel I would remember it, given it would be a momentous occasion in completion of a long-standing plot arc. Have I missed some X-Comics? And if so, which ones? So I suppose we should disambiguate here, because as any longtime listener to this podcast knows, we give Havoc a lot of shit for the fact that he never finished his degree. So to clarify, we are referring to his doctorate. Havoc did indeed finish a bachelor's degree in something, a master's degree in geophysics, and he did most of his doctoral research for his doctorate, presumably also in geophysics or something related. But thanks to, I believe, most significantly, a professor who wanted to become a giant pharaoh and a space shark falling out of the sky, Havoc just went from one terrible event to another to another to another. And as far as this podcast can tell, he never completed the dissertation that would be necessary to actually get that doctorate. He is not Dr. Alexander Summers. Uh, So, sorry, Havoc, I hope you finish it someday. Polaris did. Polaris finally did. That was made canon recently. But I think Havoc is still ABD. Not to minimize how challenging a master's degree is to get. So, well done on that, Alex. I hope you can uh, continue with your academic dreams at some point. Yeah, I mean, all he needs is to spend a year or two out of the spotlight not being featured in a comic, and then when they bring him back, we can just say that's what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, the only real downside of that is it would be a major character shift for Havoc to uh, ever have anything good happen in his life. They should build an event around it. The next event should presumably be AXE PhD. (laughs) Marvel, you heard it here first. You can have that one for free. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and or concepts. And today we're turning the mic over to Nanny, the one that Magneto built, not the one in the egg armor. Ta-ta-ta, Robert Lendrum. Have you forgotten your manners? Your dear Nanny only wants to keep you safe and warm, away from the big bad world outside of this secret volcano base. You're so precious when you're contrary, but you must be a deer and get back in your cell. Or else Nanny will be very cross indeed. <clears throat> now, Ray Ray, my little naughty one, don't you take that tone with me. Nanny is only strict because she loves you, sweetiums. It's bedtime. And children who stay up past their bedtimes will find that it is bedtime forever! And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, X-Force and Cable part ways which means it's road trip time!